Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with an absolutely amazing piece. It's a piece that we've actually been very much involved in creating, and so we're very proud of it. It's a new work by Viet Quang called Renewal. Actually, it's not that new a work because uh, we commissioned it actually more than two years ago. It was commissioned by GE Renewables, the, uh, the renewable energy wing of GE, for the Albany Symphony's uh, 2016 American Music Festival, I believe. Uh, and it was premiered by... Sandbox Percussion, this fantastic percussion quartet made of four young, brilliant percussionists who live and work in Brooklyn, New York, when they're not on the road, uh, with the Albany Symphony's new music ensemble, The Dogs of Desire. And it was really kind of the sleeper hit of that year's festival. We had a great time with it, and people were so excited about it. They talked about it all all weekend long and for many weeks thereafter. And uh, when I uh, came to uh, preparing to uh, start this new season, the 2018 season, I called Viet Quang, who's a brilliant young composer who's just finishing his doctorate at uh, Princeton while also working on an artist's diploma at the Curtis Institute, so a very illustrious young composer. Uh, And I asked him if he would be willing to contribute a new work to open our season. And he said to me, you know, David, I've been thinking a lot about that incredible performance you all gave with the Dogs of Desire uh, of my new percussion piece, and I'd love to be able to turn that into an orchestral uh, an orchestral work. Uh, currently, it was just a, an, a work for the percussionists and the 18 musicians in our new music group. And I said, well, that would be really fun. We'll bring the sandbox percussion back, and you can reimagine the piece for the full orchestra. And that is, in fact, what he did. So um, we gave the world premiere of the orchestral version of this piece, but it had existed two years prior uh, in the more chamber orchestra, I guess we'll say, or chamber ensemble version of the piece. Uh, the piece is uh, was written really to spec. One of the things that I, I really admire about Viet is that GE had had very specific ideas of what they would like uh, integrated into the ideas of the piece. Usually composers are are somewhat resistant about those kinds of specific directives, but Viet was very uh, open to the idea and loves the idea of renewable energy and had written uh, a one-movement piece just for the four percussion, not, not with orchestra or ensemble, called Wine, Whiskey, Brandy, Brine or something close to that. And uh, it was for four percussionists, for the sandbox percussionists, um, playing wine and champagne glasses filled with different levels of water to create different pitches. But what was very unique about it is that they actually play essentially quartets or duos with each other. So instead of just clanking their two glasses together, they're actually clanking glasses with the two people next to them, thus making a whole array of different possible combinations of pitches available. And it was a great piece, and that was actually the piece that I got excited about 
when I first asked Viet to write a piece way back a couple of years ago. Um, so the first movement was this water piece inspired by that piece. Uh, the second movement or the second portion of the piece, uh, Viet wanted to do all about um, wind energy. And then the third part, all about solar energy. So the piece is continuous. It doesn't actually stop between movements. It's about a 15-minute piece, but in three very distinct sections. And you should be able to hear the different sections emerge. The first section, as I said, begins with this wonderful uh, quartetting or clinking of glasses that is then joined by the strings playing harmonics, those high overtone pitches that they can make happen by touching with their bows very lightly and touching with their left hand very lightly and making high, high whistling kinds of pitches and other wonderful wind effects. So that's the first uh, third of the piece. And then you'll know we've entered the second part of the piece because you begin to hear drums. You begin to hear a snare drum. And in fact, the second movement, the second part of the piece is built around a single snare drum. And uh, the percussionists circle this snare drum while they're all playing on the very same drum. But on the exterior, there are four different kick drums, like in a in a rock band. And so as they circle the snare drum, it's very visual, so I'm trying to give you the, the idea of it, um, they kick the, the kick drum. So you get these wonderful bass drum rhythms uh, surrounding these fabulous snare drum things. And what is so wonderful about the visual element is that you begin to notice that they look absolutely like a wind turbine circling this snare drum. So it's a fabulously visual image and also a great sonic image uh, with the orchestra backing this up. Viet based this movement really much, very much on on 1990s pop kind of drum tracks and rhythm tracks. So it has a really contemporary, wonderful, uh, up-to-date pop feel. And then they matriculate eventually from that section, about five minutes later, over to an array of um, metal instruments, of glockenspiels and bells and things. And and as Viet said, uh, even the, the look of these mallet instruments, you know, they look like solar arrays. So the last third of the piece is really about sun and about these bright, brilliant, metallic sounds, again, reinforced and amplified by the orchestra. It was an absolute sensation at the concert, uh, as I expected it to be, um, just both because it's so visually stunning, but also because it's so musically stunning and because Viet is such a a unique and creative and fabulous thinker in music and creator, uh, and because the sandbox percussion players are such dazzling virtuosi. So here it is, the world premiere of the orchestral version of Viet Quang's Renewal, performed by Sandbox Percussion, the Albany Symphony, and me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The next work on our program is a work that I have loved deeply my whole life, uh, but actually, strangely, have a hard time figuring out how to program. It's Brahms's great violin concerto from 1878, uh, one of the absolute pinnacles of the violin concerto form, but um, it requires a very special kind of deeply intellectual, but also deeply emotional, passionate violinist. I think that may be the main reason I haven't programmed it very much in the last 20 or so years. I don't think the Albany Symphony and I have played it in the last 20 years, so that's a pretty long time for a major repertoire work not to have been performed. But I I had heard a number of times the brilliant young American uh, violinist Stefan Jakiv. He was Boston-based. He went to Harvard. He's the son of two uh, physicists and very 
intellectual, now lives in New York City, uh, but also very spiritual, passionate player who um, worked with the great Don Weilerstein, the violinist and teacher at New England Conservatory while Stefan was at Harvard, and uh, really has the soul and the intellectual acumen to bring this piece to life. And so I was thrilled to encounter it after a great number of years, not having done it. And uh, I managed to acquire um, online a, a facsimile copy of the manuscript and uh, really did a whole restudy of the piece, even though I had learned it early in my career. And um, I was delighted to re-encounter it and to kind of look at it anew in, in a fresh way, and particularly having this facsimile copy of Brahms's own hand. What I found most striking about the, the facsimile that I had about the manuscript is that Brahms actually was asked by Joachim, Josef Joachim, his dear friend who was one of the reigning great violin virtuosi of the 19th century and for whom Brahms wrote this piece, Brahms was asked to um, conduct the premiere of the piece, even though Brahms was not necessarily that great a conductor. He was a wonderful pianist um, and did some conducting, but not a great deal of it, did a lot of choral conducting, actually. Um, Brahms was asked by Joachim to conduct the premiere, and so in Brahms's own manuscript, are his own conducting markings from when he conducted the premiere. So in a way, not only am I able to see Brahms's ideas about the piece and also lots of the emendations, the changes he made uh, in consultation with Joachim, who really was kind of his co-pilot as this great violinist who was his best friend and who knew so much about violin playing and Brahms, being a pianist, knew less about it. Um, not only did I see um, Joachim's emendations and Brahms's changes and the way the two of them really worked, particularly on orchestral balance, taking a lot of the bass parts out and putting in pizzicati, the plucked notes that would lighten the texture and changing some of the wind harmonies and such to make the piece lighter so that the violin could easily get through the orchestral texture. But I actually could look at Brahms's conductor markings uh, of what he deemed important, what he thought should be uh, highlighted, the dynamics, uh, louds and softs and things like that. So it was really like a chance to kind of enter Brahms's mind in a very almost bizarrely wonderful, wonderful way. So I, I really enjoyed that, and it gave me great insights into what his priorities were in terms of the performance of this great masterpiece of his. As I mentioned, he he wrote the piece for Joachim, uh, kind of unsolicited. Um, they had collaborated, they'd performed, they'd toured together as pianist and violinist. It was Joachim who was this uh, absolute prodigy as a young man and throughout his career, and also a very fine composer who had first introduced Brahms to Robert and Clara Schumann, uh, which would have a major impact on his success in life, on his career, and also on his life, you know, being lifelong best friends with Clara Schumann. Later in their lives, Joachim and Brahms had a little bit of trouble. Brahms had written a, a letter to Joachim's wife, uh, who was a wonderful singer. Joachim was a very jealous, very meteoric husband, and at some point they went through a divorce proceeding, and the wife entered this letter from Brahms saying that she was, you know, blameless and and not cheating on her husband, uh, and that created a rift. But that was later in their lives. They eventually patched up the rift. Uh, but at this point in, in 1878, um, Joachim and Brahms were really close friends. And interestingly, Brahms really allowed Joachim to give lots and lots of feedback, and actually even to make a few a few minor changes in terms of pitches and and uh, and passage work, um, and uh, also allowed Joachim to 
create the cadenza, which Brahms, in a letter actually said, was so fabulous that uh, when the premiere happened, the applause for the cadenza that sits right near the end of the first movement was so great that it obliterated his ending of the piece, but he he was okay with that because the cadenza was so fantastic. But there were really interesting uh, back-and-forth interactions between Brahms and Joachim. The one that I find most fascinating is uh, when Brahms sent... Uh, the finale, the last movement, the third movement, to Joachim, he marked the movement Allegro Giocoso, which means a very happy, lively, allegro, fast tempo. And Joachim sent back to Brahms a note saying, you know, this is really hard and I really can't do it at the tempo you seem to indicate uh, or you seem to want. So would you mind putting in, uh, after Allegro Giocoso, after happy allegro, uh, ma non troppo vivace, but not too fast. And Brahms was kind of resistant. And what you can see in this wonderful facsimile I have is that he did write that in, Allegro Giocoso, Ma Non Troppo Vivace. And then he scratched it out. And then later, in his conductor script, he put it back in. So obviously, Brahms didn't want a slower tempo, but Joachim kind of pushed him, and he kept going back and forth. But interestingly, Joachim's metronome marks, the speeds at which he recommended violinists do the movements, have come down to us, and his metronome mark is actually dramatically faster than the way this movement is usually played, which of course causes me to think that if Joachim played it faster than it's usually played, imagine how Brahms wanted it to be played, because he thought Joachim's tempo was too slow. So it's those kinds of insights that we conductors live for. Anyway, here it is. Three beautiful, beautiful movements. Uh, Brahms wrote this piece in the resort town of Purtschach, uh, where he had the previous year written his second symphony, also in D major. And this piece in the first movement has shares a lot with that sunny, beautiful D major symphony. Brahms had written to his friend Hanslich, the critic, that uh, the melodies are so ubiquitous in the little town of Portschach that you have to be careful not to step on them because they're just everywhere. And indeed, in this piece, like in the uh, in the Second Symphony, they're just gorgeous, gorgeous melodies. So um, first movement, kind of a dramatic powerful, big-boned opening movement. The second movement, a glorious introspective slow movement with one of the great oboe solos in the repertoire. And the third movement, this lively Hungarian dance that we just talked about. The other comment I've always enjoyed about the concerto is Pablo de Sarasate, one of the great uh, virtuoso violinists of the day, a great Spanish virtuoso, uh, is reputed to have said something to the effect of, this is good music, but I, why would I play this concerto? Uh, you have to stand there with your violin in hand while the oboist in the second movement plays the only good tune in the piece. Uh, I must take issue with that. I mean, the piece is, to me, loaded with glorious, glorious melodies. So Sarasate obviously was wrong. Here now, uh, one of the greatest of all 19th century violin concertos, the Brahms Violin Concerto. Uh, the performance is Stefan Jacquive. He's accompanied by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. 
For the somewhat brief second half of our program, given that this was our gala festive opening night followed by a big gala party, I thought it would be nice to feature some of the greatest orchestral operatic excerpts of all times. So I selected works by three of my favorite 19th century composers, uh, Giuseppe Verdi's La Forza del Destino Overture, The Force of Destiny from 1862. This is one of Verdi's great sort of late, not very late, but late-ish operas. You know, he wrote into his 80s uh, with his last two great masterworks, Othello and Falstaff. And this comes just a little bit before that. Uh, um, Great, great overture to a a very complicated uh, and involved opera about, of course, betrayal and love and all the usual themes. But it it features all the, the themes of the opera. And yet, whether you know the opera or not, it's so... Italian and so heartfelt and so emotional and so um, so powerful that it, it works brilliantly on its own as a, a concert opener. So this is our second half opener, Forza del Destino. It's followed by a, a group of selections from Georges Bizet's great French masterwork, Carmen, from 1875. As you recall, uh, Bizet was still a rather young man, uh, still just establishing himself as a, a great figure in French music. He was 37 years old when he died, uh, just after the 33rd performance of Carmen. Uh, he died quite suddenly. And while 33 performances at the Opera Comique in Paris was a, already a good run, he had no idea that this would become the quintessential French opera of the 19th century. It is, of course, a an amazingly powerful work about betrayal and essentially feminism and uh, and uh, jealousy. And uh, I picked five or so of my very favorite selections from the opera. Uh, some of them are actually sung selections, and some, like the first two, are the the opening to the opera, the overture, the the prelude for the Toreadors, and the, the the music of fate. That's followed by the famous Abanera, in which Carmen sings that love is like a little bird. The more you try to grasp it, the further away it flies. That's followed by the Toreador song, in which uh, Escamillo, the Toreador, sings of of the bravery of walking into the the bullfighting ring and encountering the bull. And finally, uh, one of the great trios um, in all of opera, one of the greatest trios that I know. Um, This is the uh, Danse Bohème that three gypsy women sing, uh, and it becomes this kind of frenzied, wild dance number. And so these are the uh, selections from Carmen. They are followed by uh, a little bit of German opera, possibly the most famous example of instrumental music in German opera. This is Richard Wagner's The Ride of the Valkyries. It is the opening of Act Three of, of Wagner's um, second Ring of the Nibelungen opera, uh, Die Valkyr, the, the story of those brave daughters of Wotan, the king of the gods, who swoop down on the battlefields to to essentially scoop up dead warriors and bring them to Valhalla, uh, Brunhilde being the leader of the Valkyries. And in this scene, uh, composed in 1854, the opera not premiered until 1870, in this scene, which is actually not purely instrumental because you hear in the opera the sisters singing Taya Toho to each other or Hey Ho uh, as they swoop down from the mountains. But it's the most incredible visceral depiction of 
of flying, essentially, flying through the sky on these winged horses. Uh, it is the ride of the Valkyries. So once more, to close our concert, selections from three great romantic 19th century operas. First, the overture to Verdi's Forza del Destino, then selections from Bizet's Carmen, and finally, Richard Wagner's The Ride of the Valkyries from Die Valkyrie, from The Ring Cycle. They are all performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.